You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. All right, so beginning in Joshua chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, follow along with me as best you can. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years. Hmm. Thanks, Lord. Appreciate that. You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. This is a land that remains. All the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Geshurites from the Shihor, which is east of Egypt, northward, to the boundary of Ekron. It is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of the Avim, in the south, all the land of the Canaanites, and Mira, that belongs to the Sidonians, to Aphek, to the boundary of the Amorites, and the land of the Gebelites, and all Lebanon toward the sunrise from Baalgad, below Mount Hermon, to Lebo Hamath. All the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon to Mishrephoth Maim, even all the Sidonians. I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now therefore divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. With the other half of the tribe of Manasseh, the Reubenites and the Gadites received their inheritance, which Moses gave them beyond the Jordan eastward, as Moses the servant of the Lord gave them. From Aor, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and the city that is in the middle of the valley, and all the tableland of Mediba, as far as Dibon, and all the cities of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon as far as the boundary of the Ammonites and Gilead, and the region of the Geshurites and the Maacathites and all Mount Hermon and all Bashan to Seleka, all the kingdom of Og in Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth and in Edri. He alone was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. These Moses had struck and driven out. Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Maacathites, but Geshur and Maacath dwell in the midst of Israel today. I want to pause and say verse 13 um, is, is a verse that you'll, you'll want to hang on to and remember. Moving into verse 14. <clears throat> to the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance, as he said to them. Verse 14 is also important to hang on to as you make your way through this very confusing text. Verse 15, And Moses gave an inheritance to the tribe of the people of Reuben, according to their clans. So their territory was from Aor, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and the city that is in the middle of the valley, and all the tableland by Mediba, with Heshbon, and all its cities that are in the tableland, Dibon, and Bamoth Baal, and Beth Baal Meon, and Jahaz, and Kedemoth, and Mephath, and Kiriathim, and Sibma, 
and Zareth Shehar on the hill of the valley, and Beth Peor and the slopes of Pisgah, and Beth Jejemuth, that is, all the cities of the Tableland, and all the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, whom Moses defeated, with the leaders of Midian, Evi, and Rechem, and Zer, and Hur, and Reba, the princes of Sihon, who lived in the land. Balaam also, the son of Beor, the one who practiced divination, that is magic, um, was killed with the sword by the people of Israel among the rest of their slain. And the border of the people of Reuben was the Jordan as a boundary. This was the inheritance of the people of Reuben according to their clans with their cities and villages. Verse 24, <coughs> Moses gave an inheritance also to the tribe of Gad. To the people of Gad, according to their clans, their territory was Jazer. In all the cities of Gilead and half the land of the Ammonites to Aor, which is east of Rabbah. And from Heshbon to Ramoth Mizpah and Bedonim, and from Mahanaim to the territory of Deber, and in the valley of Beth Haram, Beth Nimrah, Succoth, and Zaphon, the rest of the kingdom of Sihon, king of, Gesh, of Heshbon, having the Jordan as a boundary to the lower end of the Sea of Chinneroth, eastward beyond the Jordan. This is the inheritance of the people of Gad, according to their clans with their cities and villages. And Moses gave an inheritance to the half-tribe of Manasseh. It was allotted to the half-tribe of the people of Manasseh, according to their clans. Their region extended from Mahanim through all Bashan, the whole kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, and all the towns of Jair, which are in Bashan, 60 cities and half Gilead, and Ashtaroth, and Idri, the cities of the kingdom of Og in Bashan. These were allotted to the people of Maker, the son of Manasseh, for the half of the people of Maker, according to their clans. These are the inheritance, inheritances that Moses distributed in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan east of Jericho. Verse 33 is important for us to note as we work our way through. But to the tribe of Levi... Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. I wish that you might circle that one thing. Um, the Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. Chapter 14, verse 1. These are the inheritances that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun, which always cracks me up, just saying, the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel gave them to inherit. Their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and a half, one half tribes. For Moses had given an inheritance to the two and one half tribes beyond the Jordan, but to the Levites, he gave no inheritance among them. Verse 4 is uh, something to uh, note as well. We're really going to spend some time there later. Uh, just note that it says, For the people of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and no portion was given to the Levites in the land, but only cities to dwell in with their pasture lands for the livestock and their substance. The people of Israel, verse 5, the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. They allotted the land. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Amen. Amen. I want to pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask God uh, that you would do exactly what it is that you have promised to do, which is to be faithful to your word and to use your word to do um, invisible work inside of our hearts. 
Lord, I think it's hard for us to read a text like this and think about sitting on our front porch, eating a snack and drinking a cup of coffee and just reading through the details of the deed of the property that we own or the rental property that we uh, live in and think that that would be any fun. We recognize, Father, that as we read uh, a legal document very much like that this morning, that you um, can use even a, um, a text as almost seemingly boring as this. Do tremendous amounts of work in our hearts. So, Father, we just come with, to you um, in faith this morning, trusting that you will take seemingly mundane words like this and a mundane list like this and do something extraordinary in each of us. Pray, God, that you would help me uh, to communicate your word, communicate the gospel in a way that is faithful to you and helpful to your people, and trust that you will do exactly that. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I admit that uh, it was this, um, these portions of text that we're going to be in over the next few weeks uh, and even beginning last week that I, I admit from the very beginning, I, in some regards, somewhat uh, ignored that, that they were here. Um, I think that even Martin Luther makes a comment that any preacher that chooses to get up on a Sunday morning and, and preach through these legal deeds of ownership uh, is crazy. So um, I'm not even sure if Martin Luther would do what we are going to attempt to do over the next few weeks. Truth be told, even, um, uh, even uh, most commentaries that you get into have very short sections of comments on these passages of Scripture, just simply because they are what they are. Uh, they're lists of different cities and lands that uh, have uh, absolutely no connection to us, right? I mean, I, we think about America that we live in, and we kind of know geographically where different areas of the country are, but uh, when you think about these words... These just come across like words on a page that seem meaningless. Um, and so I think the faith that we have to have this morning is what I just prayed. Uh, and it's the, the faith that, uh, that uh, as we are faithful to uh, dive into the words of this text, that God will do what he says he will do, right? So uh, with that said, um, dive in. Uh, basically, what we just read um, in this passage uh, is a description of Israel's physical inheritance um, in the promised land. That's basically short summary. Um, there's more to it, obviously. Um, you'll remember as we're reading through it that uh, you got two and a half tribes receiving their land on the east side of the Jordan River. And then you got nine and a half tribes are basically receiving a plan for the distribution of the land on the west side of the Jordan River. So summarize that, the east side receives their land, and the west side receives a plan, okay? Um, so the east side receives the land, the west side receives a plan. I'm going to break the text down just a little bit more. don't want to move on from it that fast. Uh, uh, next slide um, in the slideshow here on the TVs. We'll kind of give you a breakdown of the text. So you're looking at those six points on that screen. <clears throat> I'm not going to preach a six-point message, just so you know. Um, but I do want to help us kind of wrap our minds around the, the kind of the rhythm and the flow of the text, because I do think that's, that's important to understand what we're going to learn. So breakdown of the text, fairly simple, maybe a little bit confusing. Hopefully you can follow along with me, though. Uh, in chapter 13, 
verses 1 through 7. What basically happens there, you'll recall, is that God speaks to Joshua and he points out Joshua's age, right? I don't think that God's interested in just being like, hey, old man. I think there's something highly relational that's taking place here, and I think that it's very possible that God could just be acknowledging how weary and how tired Joshua may be. <coughs> I know that's a bit of an uh, inference to the text, but I do think that's very possible that God could just be very relational and just identifying the weariness. He then moves on, God does, he identifies a land that still needs to be conquered in those first seven verses. He promises to drive out Israel's enemies out of the land, and then he also commands Joshua to divide the land west of the Jordan between nine and a half tribes of Israel. Okay, then move on to the second thing we see in the text uh, in chapter 13. Look at verses 8 through 13. What you see there is basically a broad summary of the land that was given to the two and a half tribes of Israel on the east side of the Jordan. And in there at verse 13, there's a note, right? I think I mentioned this. Pay attention to verse 13. That note in verse 13 basically identifies some enemies who are still living in the land because Israel did not drive them out. Okay, so that's something for us to remember as we work our way through this. There's also some uh, reoccurring notes um, that kind of pop up sporadically uh, throughout the text as we read it. Uh, if you're looking at verse 14 of chapter 13, looking at verse 33 of chapter 13, and then looking at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 14, there's these sporadic notes that keep popping up regarding the inheritance of the Levitical priests. Okay, So you see some of those notes that pop up all the way through. And then after that, you also have a summary of the land uh, on the east side of the Jordan River that the Lord gave to the tribe of Reuben. Uh, that's verses 15 through 23. Uh, to the tribe of Gad, that's verses 24 through 28. And then to half the tribe of Manasseh, verses 29 through 32. <clears throat> and then finally, at the tail end of everything that we read today, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 14. What do you see there? You see a summary of the land that is on the, the west side, basically a plan. It's not even an entire summary of the land, but it's a, a plan. Um, for the land on the west side of the Jordan River that the other nine and a half tribes of Israel are about to possess, okay? Lots of info, isn't it? I, lots of info. Um, let me summarize, try to summarize everything that I just said. Again, you got it on the screen in front of you. Um, uh, try not to check out because this, this will be, I think, important uh, for us as we move our way through. Short summary, what happens here? God speaks to Joshua Joshua begins to divide the promised land between the 12 tribes of Israel. And basically what's happening here is a legal process, okay? It's a legal process of basically writing the deeds of the land to the rightful tenants. It's a process that's honestly, it's going to continue through the end of chapter 21. So what we have here is the beginning of nine chapters of the Bible that describe of the legal division and distribution of property to the rightful tenants from the owner of the property. Okay? God owns the property. He's just distributing it to the rightful tenants of the property. And the question for us at this point, as always, is this simple question, who cares? 
Who cares? Right? Who of us in this room cares about what we just read and is going to find something out of it? I, I think if we're mostly honest, if you're doing a day-to-day Bible reading plan on your Bible app, these are nine chapters of Scripture that you typically do the Z-read. Um, if you know what that is, the Z-read is you kind of start here, you glance over, you glance down, you glance over, and you go, yep, got it, boring, <laughs> crumpled up, tossed to the side, right? But I read nine chapters, kind of. Um, that's just what we're going to do because, like, these words, these cities, these towns, these boundaries, they're meaningless to us. That truth be told at the end of the day. They don't mean much to us. Now, now to a Jewish person, um, this is a, probably an emotional read. Um, it's, much, it, it, it's, it's not as much a legal contract for them. This is an emotional, lifelong journey um, that is uh, being fulfilled. Um, so I, I, we still have to ask the question, why is this text important? Right? So, I mean, for, for the Jews, um, for Joshua, um, again, this is important historically. Um, it's, in, it's important legally because it identifies these portions of the land that were given to each of the 12 tribes. Uh, the bottom line in this text uh, is that God is simply making good on His promises. Uh, his promises throughout the generations to give land to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Again, this is all fine and dandy. That's good to know that he's doing that. Um, But what good is that information to us? Um, How is that information going to be helpful to us in in just learning about our relationship with God, who God is, and how we can relate to him, right? The first thing that I noticed that I want you to look at with me is this principle that I think kind of bleeds out of the text. And it's this principle. It's simply put, God sees you. That's the simple principle. God sees you. It's easy to overlook this in a text like this, but the truth remains, and it's highly illustrated in this passage, that God sees you. You know what it's like to feel invisible? Sometimes I think it's really easy to feel invisible, right? Um, Feels like no one sees you. Um, it can feel like uh, no one sees maybe the difficulty or the pain or the hardship or the suffering, maybe the loneliness that you uh, walk through life with. So at times it's just really easy to feel invisible. Maybe you try really hard to live in obedience to God, right? You try really hard to live in obedience to God. Sometimes you experience these victorious highs, and then other times you experience these devastating lows, these failures. Um, And in those moments, it can be really easy to feel all alone, like no one sees this. I'm I'm, I'm the only one doing this. I'm worn out. I'm tired, right? This story in Joshua, the reality is that this story we've been reading so far um, has been full of both victory and failure, massive highs and devastating lows. The story of Israel all throughout the Bible is filled with Soaring highs and devastating lows. Your story and my story, same thing. We all experience victorious highs and devastating failures and lows. And the good news of the gospel, right, throughout the Bible, the good news of the gospel is that God sees you. God sees you in the midst of your victories and your failures. You're not invisible to Him. 
He's invisible to you. But you're not invisible to Him. When God speaks to Joshua in verses 1-7, through what does He say? When He basically says, hey, I see you. I see you. I see all the work you've been doing. I see all the hard things you've been walking through. You're not done yet. you still got work to do. And I'm going to be the one who does the things that are absolutely impossible for you. I'm going to take out your enemies. I'm going to give you this promised land. So go get out there and get after it. It's a beautiful picture of the cross of Christ, I think. Because at the cross of Christ is where each one of us goes to find our rest. We find our rest at the foot of the cross from our exhausting battle against Satan, sin, the world, and the grave. So questions for you. Do you feel worn out? Do you feel invisible and worn out? Worn out from your fight against sin? Has your battle against temptation worn you down? It feels like you're trapped in the effects of the world that we live in and you just can't get away from it. The environments that you live in in this world, whether that be your workspace or your friend space, is full of the creepiness and the filthiness of the world that we live in. And it feels exhausting. And you feel alone in that battle. Or some of us that probably feel the looming threat of the shortness of this life too when you think about our enemy our old enemy the grave the one that's coming for every one of us do you feel that weight of the shortness of this life becoming maybe too much to bear for you or maybe you're watching a family member struggle towards the end of their life and you recognize this is hard and you feel alone in those moments you feel invisible the truth of this passage is this, that you, you're not alone. And God sees you in the midst of all those places. Just be encouraged. When you take these seven verses, and you might write this note down, if you take these seven verses and God's interaction with Joshua and you, and you lay them right next to one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 139. It's, it's a beautiful reminder It's a beautiful reminder that no matter where you are at in your journey, God sees you. Even in your darkest moments of failure, even in your worst moments of rebellion, even in your hardest seasons of suffering, God sees you. He sees every moment of every day that you will ever live. He knows every hair that will grow on your head. He knows it. And he sees it. And he's already seen it. And not, not just that he sees those inanimate things, but he sees you. Every aspect of you. There's nowhere you can hide from him. God is always present and you are never hidden from his sight. Now, for some of us, that can be a a great comfort. And for some of us, that can be a very fearful thing too. I trust that the Holy Spirit will use that in you in His own way. The second thing that I see uh, from this text is that your weaknesses don't define you. Your weaknesses don't define you. Somebody say amen. 
Your weaknesses don't define you. Let's ask you, <laughs> can you think of some area of weakness in your life right now? Just an area of weakness. And I just want you to write it down. Pause and let the silence set that in for you. An area of weakness in your life. Where do you not feel strong? Where have you failed epically failing? The reality is that we often live under a heavy cloud of our weaknesses and our shortcomings. Many of us. The more depressive ones like me. <laughs> we live under a heavy weight. Heavy cloud of our weaknesses and our shortcomings. But we oftentimes in our minds we make comparisons between our lives and other people's lives. We, we get tired of fighting the good fight. Get obsessed with some area of our lives that uh, we are not yet perfected in. And we live in fear and despair. Anybody relate to that? Other times, and maybe there's others of us in the room that are more prone to this, um, maybe just living complete oblivion. <laughs> like, not really much wrong with me. What are you talking about? Some of the wives are looking at their husbands right now. <laughs> um, sometimes we just live in complete oblivion in regards to our broken nature, right? We ignore these places of our lives that need work. We, we pretend like we're better than we really are maybe too. We try to cover it up. To hide. God, God in His kindness, though, the beauty of who God is, is God doesn't ignore our weaknesses. Sometimes I'd like Him to, you know. It's like times when one of my kids comes up to me and, and points out a mistake that I make, uh, you know, or, a, or a, a failure, a particular weakness that I have. I, you know, I just kind of like, shut up. I don't want to hear about that. Um, sometimes that's probably what I'd rather God do, but in his kindness, he doesn't ignore my weaknesses. In his kindness, he doesn't ignore our failures. He doesn't gloss it over. He doesn't pretend like we're better than we really are. He also doesn't ignore your faults. And he also doesn't hold those faults over your head in some kind of shame game or guilt trip. Okay? And I think there's a lot of us in the room that are probably more prone to guilt language inside of us. You're so stupid. Why did you do that? Right? Whether you say it out loud or not, I think a lot of us probably say things like that inside. That's guilt. That's, that's shame language. You're so stupid. That's shame. Why did you do that? That's guilt. God doesn't speak necessarily that way. At times, the why question is important. Why did you do this? What, what got you here? As, as a father comes lovingly to his kid to drill down and to, to, to do heart work, to see change happen, right? Um, God in his kindness doesn't shame you, doesn't guilt you. He, he speaks to you realistically uh, regarding your failures, your weaknesses. And what he does in the midst of that is he extends his grace and His mercy and His forgiveness towards you in the cross of Christ. He does the same thing with Israel, I believe, in verse 13. It's one that I mentioned that you should take note of. 
does the same thing with Israel in verse 13. He speaks realistically, clearly about Israel's failure to completely drive out their enemies. They should have. They could have. They had God on their side. There's no reason for those two enemies to still be living there. They should have been driven out. He speaks to them about that failure, but the beautiful thing that happens simultaneously that I think is easy to miss is that God still gives them their inheritance. He still gives them the land. If I was God, thank God I'm not God. I wouldn't have given them the land. Would you? Like, who gives somebody a paycheck for not doing their job? Right? That's the kind of hearts that all of us have. We've been brought up, whether in church or outside of church, with the sense of paycheck. You know what the scriptures say about paychecks? The wages for our sin is what? Death. That's the paycheck. But you know what the message of the gospel is? The free gift of God is what? Eternal life. Inheritance. It's a free gift, not a paycheck. So here in this passage, God in this moment like shines this massive light on himself, his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, his generosity, his faithfulness. When he looks at Israel and he says, hey, you know what? You don't meet the mark. But you know what? I'm still going to give you your inheritance. It's a free gift. It's not something that can be earned. I think about how powerful um, of a motivator we have in this truth. When you, when you sit in this for a minute, the powerful motivator that this truth is, listen, God is gracious. He's given you what you don't deserve. God is merciful. He has withheld what you actually deserve. God is generous. He has given away so much to you and I. He is forgiving. He's wiped the slate clean. Your filthy stains from your sin are gone. No longer there. Even the one you just committed a moment ago. Gone. Washed. Clean. He's forgiven you. He's faithful. Never left you alone. Always comes through on His promises. You think about those truths. You think about the place that you're actually going to experience those. And not just know those like some list that you have in your mind, right? But you're actually going to do the Ephesians thing where Paul says, I'm praying that you would experience this kind of God relationally. Where are you going to find God that way? I would say at the foot of the cross of Calvary. The blood of the cross of Christ covers and removes the filth of your sin. Even though you are too weak to remove the remaining effects of your sin in this life. Listen close. You are too weak to remove the remaining effects of sin in this life. If you were strong enough to remove the remaining effects of sin in this life, guess who you would not need? You would not need Jesus. You would not need him. Just like the enemies here of Israel that Israel did not drive out. You're too weak. And God doesn't withhold 
your inheritance found in the cross of Christ from you because of that weakness. God speaks honestly about your inability and your shortcomings. doesn't gloss it over. He speaks honestly. Why does he do that? He does this so that you can grab hold of his sufficiency in the work of Jesus at the cross. And here's what happens. The cross becomes your brand new identity because the God who keeps his promises, he is the one who did the work of saving you through the work of Jesus at the cross. Therefore, he is now the one who defines you by the cross of his son, Jesus. He's the one who defines you. Your weaknesses don't define you. Isn't that a far better motivation for obedience? than just simply doing the moralistic, legalistic thing. Moralism being, I'm going to do the right things because it's the right thing to do. Legalism being, I'm going to do the right thing because it's going to get me what I want. Rather than doing either one of those, what if we could just live through the motivation of the grace of Jesus shown to us at the cross of Christ? How, how would it transform your obedience? God sees you. Sees everything about you. And here's the thing, your weaknesses, and they're not too big for him. And they don't scare him off. And they don't define you. <coughs> Third thing that I notice um, in the text is that you belong to God and he belongs to you if you've trusted in him. Right? You belong to God and he belongs to you if you've trusted him. In him. Now we see this principle uh, fleshed out when we examine the inheritance that the Lord gave to the Levites. This is uh, going to be a bit of a confusing journey that we're going to take over the next few minutes. So hang in there, pay attention, stay awake. Um, when you look at the inheritance that the Lord gave to the Levites, um, you start to learn this principle that you belong to God and He belongs to you. And you can uh, view all of this specifically in verses 14 and 33 and then verse 4 of 14. Let me just read the, the, the kind of the summarized version to you of those <coughs> verses, okay? And I want you to pay attention. So here's those verses. Here's what it would say if you were to put those together. It would say this, To the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance, as he said to them. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. No portion was given to the Levites in the land, but only cities to dwell in with their pasture lands for their livestock and their substance. So, uh, if I'm going to summarize all of that, uh, the Levites basically received no physical deeds to any part of the promised land, um, except for some cities here and there. Uh, we'll talk about that more as we move into the rest of the book. Trust me, we're going to get there. Um, their inheritance was God and their ministry. Um, it was God himself and the offerings by fire, their ministry. So their inheritance was their God and their ministry. Got it? Said it three times. Say, I got it. Okay, I heard three of you. Say, I got it. Oh, it was five. Okay, we're good. <laughs> Here's what I want us to do. We're going to do a little bit of background work. Um, hold that principle in your mind for a minute. Hopefully the background work here helps you 
as you're thinking about this. Um, in the history of Israel, here's what you see. You see 12 tribes. Uh, here's what we'll do. Let's put a picture on the screen. Pictures are helpful. There. Uh, it's probably hard to see, but pictures are helpful. This is a picture of the promised land. So, um, and this is a picture of kind of the way that the tribes were distributed. And you can kind of see the Jordan River running through the center. You can see the two and a half tribes on the east side and the nine and a half tribes on the west side. But to give you something to look at as you're listening and just kind of thinking through what I'm about to explain. In the history of Israel, what we see uh, through our study in the Bible is we see 12 tribes descending from the sons of Jacob. Okay, You can see a clear picture of this on the screen, but you can also see a clear picture of this in Numbers chapter 1. So Numbers chapter 1 would be a good place to go um, to kind of see some of this. So if you were to examine Numbers chapter 1, it would seem like there are actually 13 tribes. Everybody go, what? Wait a minute. It would seem like there were 13 tribes. What do you see in front of you? If you do the list count, there's 12, okay? So somebody say, I'm confused. Okay, stick with me for a minute. That's okay. Be confused. I was confused too for a bit. Um, would seem like there's 13 tribes. Here's the deal. 12 tribes receive physical inheritance in the promised land, while it would appear that the 13th tribe, which is the Levites, um, were scattered uh, throughout each of the 12 tribes. So the question is, were there 12 tribes or were there 13? Looks like there's 12 with a 13th scattered, agreed? Uh, it seems like, so mathematically, there's some mathematical things that just either A, don't work out as you study this, or there's something else going on. So somebody say there's something else going on. <laughs> there is something else going on. So uh, at that point, though, you can ask that question. It's an important question to ask, right? Um, the answer to the question, again, a little bit confusing. Um, comes a little bit more obvious, though, if you go back a little bit further in the Scriptures. You go back to Genesis 48 and 49. In Genesis 48 and 49, uh, what you find is you find the tribe of Joseph. Everybody say the tribe of Joseph. Say the tribe of Joseph is the key. Say the tribe of Joseph is the key. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Sorry. The tribe of Joseph is the key. Very good. We're together. We're together. The tribe of Joseph um, is designated through his two sons, catch this, Manasseh and Ephraim. Now, um, you see both of those on the screen. Um, it's kind of interesting. Uh, the two half-tribes of Manasseh on either side of the Jordan River there, they got some massive amounts of property, right? Say, so that's one darn big tribe, right? Okay, you guys are doing really good. Now you're following along. And then you see little itty-bitty Ephraim right down there kind of towards the bottom there on the west side, right? Um, so you got those two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. Those were two, Joseph's two sons. Now these two sons, a um, little bit of background work again, very fascinating, very interesting. These two sons were both born from a foreign wife. Both born from a foreign wife. They were also both born in a foreign land. Uh, they were also both adopted. Ooh, the doctrine of adoption in the Old Testament. Oh, I love it. I wish I had time. Um, foreign wife foreign children, adopted by Joseph's dad, Jacob. Now, who was the promise to of this land? The promise was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph's dad. Okay, so we're starting to draw this in a little bit. Um, also, if you look at Joshua 14, verse 4, this is where you see this little tiny note about these two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim being of the tribe of Joseph. 
So looking at the physical map of the promised land, um, like the one on the screen, what you're looking at is you're looking at the house of Joseph um, being given a double portion. Okay? So you've got the tribe of Manasseh and the tribe of Ephraim. <clears throat> when it comes to the literal 12 tribes of Israel, those two tribes make up one tribe. So this is where the math doesn't work out. Um, and the reality is that Joseph's banner is over both of those tribes, the two half-tribes and one full tribe. Now you're back to the Levites being the 12th tribe, not 13th tribe. So you can go all over the internet and do all sorts of research and find questions like, is America the 13th tribe? <gasps> Maybe. No, probably not. Okay, so fascinating to search through. Um, but that's what you find when you do this study. Long story short, again, physical appropriation of the land here is given to 11 tribes with one of those tribes, the tribe of Joseph, being split into two. Um, now when you enter the tribe of Levites as the 12th tribe, okay, we're going to come back to the Levites. Um, I know some of you are going to ask, like, why was all that significant? Um, I think part of it's significant just so simply for this reason, so you can explain the text. Like, I, I should not be the only one that's able to explain that. You ought to be able to sit down with your coworker this week and explain what we just studied, right? Why? And that's one of those places where uh, the authenticity of the scriptures and the reliability of the scriptures, I mean, isn't it just a book y'all read? Or is that thing really the word of God? No, it's the word of God, and it does work out. This is one of those areas of scripture that is very hard for people who are very skeptical for people who have not yet believed. It's one of those areas. And so it's important for us as believers to carry that responsibility to be able to answer the question. So maybe just for that reason alone, I think it will hold some significance to the point, right? Because what was the point? The point that we're looking at right now is that you belong to God and He belongs to you. You belong to God and He belongs to you. You think about the 12 tribes of Israel. What was happening for all of them? They're learning about what it means to belong to God, to have Him belong to them. So when you enter the tribe of the Levites, this final tribe, and you look at them and you see that they're not getting physical inheritance, what are they getting? They're getting split up throughout the 12 tribes. They're getting split up throughout the, into those 12 parts. They're getting distributed throughout the land. What is this a picture of? You go to the story when Jesus says, hey, by the way, guys, I died, I'm resurrected, I'm going back to heaven, yo, and someday I'm going to come back and get you and take you with me. But until then, what are they to do? Scatter. Scatter. I am your inheritance, and you belong to me. So scatter. Belong to God, and I belong to you. You have a ministry and a God. Those are the two pieces of inheritance that you and I have. We have a connection to the Levitical priest. Somebody say, What? Yes, we have a connection to the Levitical priesthood. Not because we're the 13th lost tribe of America. Just saying. So you know, we do have a connection though. Say, what's the connection? <coughs> I love you guys. You're following along. I love good talk back. We have a connection to them according to 1 Peter 2.9. Say 1 Peter 2.9. Write it down. 1 Peter 2.9 says this. We are a chosen race and a royal priesthood. <gasps> A royal priesthood. Levitical priests were a royal priesthood. We are now connected to them in that way because of the cross of Christ. 
Because of the cross of Christ, Peter, the disciple of Jesus, is later saying, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Nation. Listen to this. A people for his, whose, God's own possession. Ownership. Owned by God and belonging to God because of the cross of Christ. Why? Peter goes on to say, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. That's shorthand for He who called you up out of Egypt and slavery to your sin and set you free by His very own right hand. That's the story. So all of us have a connection to the Levites. They inherited the Lord Himself. Their responsibility was to proclaim His goodness and His faithfulness throughout the nation of Israel. And if you have trusted in the work of Jesus at the cross and the empty tomb, then you and I belong to God and He belongs to us and we have this shared responsibility to share His goodness everywhere we go. Let me tell you something. This small group inside this room, just look around at each other real fast. There is absolutely no reason, no reason whatsoever that the neighborhood that sits outside of our church shouldn't be hearing the gospel from every one of us in this room. There's absolutely no reason. We belong to God and He belongs to us and we have a message to proclaim and relationships to build. God could do mighty powerful things to this tiny little nation named Israel. He could do massive tiny little things through you and me in this church family. I wholeheartedly believe that. Otherwise, I would have never started a Bible study with four people on my living room couch seven years ago. Never. I would have never stuck with it. I wouldn't be standing here today. This is such a good truth. God sees you in your weaknesses. <coughs> He doesn't define you by your weaknesses. Why? Because you belong to Him and He belongs to you. Finally, last thing I see in the text. Speed through the end here. It's a truth that most of you are like, duh. Here's the truth. You're not in heaven yet. Huh? What? You're not in heaven yet. That's, that's the final thing I see in this text. You're like, really? You see that? Where? Well, it's just true. Like, Because you're sitting here today. And this, not heaven. Okay? You're not in heaven yet. Um, the reality, um, what I'm getting after is a, uh, it's a theological um, tension called the already and the not yet. Okay? Um, uh, we live in this tension of the already and not yet. Everybody say already. already. Now say not yet. not yet. Okay, good. It's cemented. Uh, th- this principle, when you think of the already not yet, it's illustrated by the promise of inheritance uh, from a wealthy relative. So you think about that promise. You've got a wealthy relative. They've promised to will you a whole bunch of stuff, right? <coughs> but that relative hasn't died yet. Still alive. That principle is illustrated in that, in that picture, in that story. The inheritance belongs to you. It belongs to you because your relative has said, hey, it belongs to you. When I die, it's yours. It's written down. Hard line. Promise is there. It belongs to you. But you're not going to take possession of that inheritance until your relative dies. So, it's already yours, but it's not yet in your possession. Get it? Already? Not yet. So in this life, you and I have been promised the inheritance of eternity in God's perfect presence. That's our promise. 
<coughs> wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. You can promise that. So if you've trusted in Christ, then you've received the gift of salvation. You've also received the promise of eternal life. You're going to take possession of that eternal life once you cross from this life into the next. It's already yours, but it's not yet in your possession. So you look at Israel's inheritance of the promised land, and it provides a physical representation of what I'm talking about. You see this already not yet principle in this text. You see the inheritance on the east side, which is described in chapter 13, verses 15 through 32, right? Uh, laid out for the half-tribe Manasseh, Reuben, and Gad. Um, when that gets laid out, that's absolutely possessed by those two and a half tribes. They take ownership of it right now. But the inheritance on the west side, which is par partially described in verses 1 through 5 um, of chapter 14, it it's largely unpossessed. They they've done a lot of work up until now. But there's a lot of land, if you remember right, go back to 13, 1 through 7. There's a lot of area that is not yet taken care of. Um, so it's largely unpossessed by those nine and a half tribes. <coughs> so the family of Israel, you got 12 tribes. Once again, somebody please say 12 tribes. 12. Not 13, just so you know. Uh, the family of Israel, all 12 of those tribes, man, they own all the promised land. It belongs to them. It belongs to God. It belongs to them. Um, but they have yet to take possession of it all completely. So what does that teach us? When you think about this already not yet principle, what does it teach us? Uh, it teaches you that you're not in heaven yet and that you're still living here on earth. Something that we intrinsically already know but need to be reminded of in different ways, don't we? That you're not going to find heaven on earth, although Jesus does say, hey, came so that my kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, can be manifest on this earth. Uh, side note, I would say I, think, I believe the church is the representation of what Jesus is talking about there. We're the closest thing to heaven that people are going to experience. It's not a physical land like the land of America. Um, it's, it's the church, I, I believe, from my study in Scripture. It's the closest thing to heaven that people are going to experience before they actually get there. But until we get there, what's the truth we need to remember? You're not there yet. We're still here. So what this does is this reminds us that we are a work in progress. We're a work in progress looking forward with anticipation to the day when our transformation is going to be complete. This principle, this truth that we're not in heaven yet reminds us that we're not in heaven yet. It reminds us that Jesus has already purchased the deed for our promised land. It reminds us that Jesus actually paid the price for our inheritance, our redemption at the cross. Why? So that you and I can take possession of our eternal inheritance when we step into heaven. And what is heaven, by the way? Some place far above the clouds? It's just simply being in the presence of God. The perfect presence of God. Simply what it is. The message of the scriptures all along is that God wasn't going to make us work to come and get to Him, like other so-called gods with little g's. God was actually in His grace and kindness going to come and condescend down to us and give His life for us. That's the message. So that He could tabernacle, tent with us, as in the Old Testament. So that we could be gathered around Him, feasting on Him in His presence perfectly. That's the picture. 
Every time God's word is preached and we sit in those moments, it's a picture of what heaven will be like. But it's, it's, it's an incomplete picture because we're here. And there, it's going to be perfect. No sin, no mourning, no crying, no death, no suffering. <coughs> I can't imagine what it's going to be like. Well, to be there in God's presence perfectly without any hindrances, no shackles. Right? So, God sees you. Your weaknesses don't define you. Why? Because you belong to God if you trust in Him. And He belongs to you if you trust in Him. And all of this is already and not yet, because you're not in heaven yet. So, how do you conclude your time in a passage like this? Um, again, basically been studying the historical record of how uh, Israel began to take possession of the inheritance that was promised to them many years earlier. We've learned that God sees us in all of our victories. Sees us all our failures, all of our weaknesses don't define us because we belong to God. He belongs to us even though we aren't in heaven yet, right? We look forward to heaven as we endure this life because we know that heaven is where our inheritance is completely appropriated. So how do you conclude this? I'm going to conclude it this way. The book of Philippians connects for a concluding statement. The book of Philippians reminds us in ver- chapter 1, verse 6 of the great hope that we have and the promise of heaven in Paul's words. Here's what we hear Paul say. One of my favorite passages of all times. He says, I am sure of this. Sure of what? I'm certain. I'm certain of this. That he, who? God. That he, God, who began a good work in you. Has God begun a good work in you this morning? Have you trusted in him? Do you know him? Do you belong to him? Does he belong to you? He, God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You know what the good news of that is? I don't have to work. But I get to work. Follow me? I don't have to work, but I get to work. I get to work for the God who loves me, extended his mercy and his grace. I don't have to do it to earn anything. It's been given. Far greater motivation to get off my butt and go walk in the holiness, and share the gospel, and mature. Isn't it? I don't have to work, but I get to. So this is a great reminder of the inheritance that we've been promised in Christ Jesus. We've been promised perfection in the presence of perfection. No more sin, no more suffering, no more pain, no more sickness, no more tears. Only promised perfection in the presence of perfection for all of eternity. So in the meantime, as you wait... <clears throat> for heaven, and you find hope in this truth. Hope in this one truth. God sees you just as you are. He sees all of your ups and your downs, all the good things and the bad things about you. And yet those weaknesses that you walked in with this morning that you know are there, the thing that you wrote down where you're weak at, the thing that you probably don't want anybody else to know about, that weakness doesn't define you if you belong to God if you've trusted in Him, and if He belongs to you. And all that is possible even though you aren't in heaven yet. And heaven is the place where you will complete the uh, completion, the fulfillment, the complete possession of all the inheritance that God has promised to you when you run into heaven completely free of your shackles. Final picture that just came to my mind. Um, Gosh, dang it. I'd like to stop crying. Sorry. 
at the end of the book, uh, there's a book called Pilgrim's Progress. At the end of that book, um, Christian, main character, has been on this journey, been bearing down under all this load. Enemies keep coming against him. And he comes down to the, the end of the book, the end of the story, and he's getting ready to cross over into the celestial city, heaven. He's going to cross this, this river. And it's either him or it's one of his buddies. I think it's one of his buddies on crutches. He's been walking with this severe weakness his entire life. And he, he drops the crutches. And he runs into the water and runs into heaven. Free from your weaknesses. That's the picture of the cross. That's what the cross does for you. And for me, if you've never trusted in Christ or if you've been struggling to trust in Jesus, this is the picture of what it means to trust in Jesus. That one day, one day, your crutches will be laid on the ground and you'll be in the perfect presence of your Savior. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word, this passage. Pray, God, that you would use it to transform hearts this morning. Trust you to do the work. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.